this morning, we're continuing in our sermon series, Seeing Jesus Encountering Christ in the Epistles, and we have a guest preacher with us this morning. Dr. George Guthrie is a professor of New Testament at Regent College, and he's also an expert in the book of Hebrews, which he'll be preaching from this morning. So it's great to have him with us today. Good morning. Today's reading is from Hebrews chapter four, verse 14, to chapter five, verse 10. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has descended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. His, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. In the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. It's good to be back at First Baptist Church. I bring you greetings from Regent College. And I'm just delighted to have the opportunity to open God's Word with you this morning. Let's read the first part of our passage one more time. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need." Let me begin this morning by saying a word about how Hebrews came about. 
The book was written in about 63 AD, probably to people in Rome who were being persecuted for the faith. Nero at this time was only 26 years of age. He was an emperor who had come to the throne very early. And in just a year or so, he is going to begin a violent persecution of the church. And already, persecution is beginning to elevate in the city. Some people had left the churches there in Rome, and others had one foot out the door. Now, this book is the most complete example that we have of an early Christian sermon. It was written to believers in Jesus to help them hang in there in Christ's following. Now, I'm going to be teaching a short course on this book at Regent in May, and I would love to have some of you come and join me as we look at the details of this book. But let me, this morning, focus on the author's main strategy. What he does to help these people who are struggling with the faith is he presents Christology as a foundation for life. Now, maybe some of us struggle with the concept of theology. It sounds kind of heady, but actually it's very, very important that we think well in order to live well. The British author Dorothy Sayers, back in the 1950s, responded to the idea that was going around in her day that we really don't need all of this dogma or theology. We just need to worship and not worry about the details of dogma. But she wrote this, Christ, in his divine innocence, said to the woman of Samaria, you don't know what you are worshiping, being apparently under the impression that it might be desirable on the whole to know what one was worshiping. He thus showed himself sadly out of touch with the 20th century mind for the cry today is, away with the tedious complexities of theology. Let us have the simple spirit of worship, just worship, no matter what. The only drawback to this demand for a generalized and undirected worship is the practical difficulty of arousing any sort of enthusiasm for the worship of nothing in particular. And we need clarity in the way that we think about God. The way that we think will shape the way that we live. So Hebrews helps us in that regard when it comes to Jesus. And if I could sum up kind of the main idea behind this book, it would be this, that your perseverance in the Christian faith will be in exact proportion to the clarity with which you see who Jesus is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. So this morning, we want to talk about seeing Jesus more clearly, which is the series that you're in. But we're going to focus on seeing Jesus as our high priest. Jesus is greater than you ever imagined. He is more compassionate than you dared hope. So hold on. And Jesus brings you farther than you ever dreamed possible, so draw near. Those are the main points of our message this morning. So first of all, Jesus is greater than you ever imagined. Again, verse 14 reads, 
Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Here's the foundation for the exhortations that we see as the passage continues. Our faith is grounded in the high priesthood of Jesus. Hebrews makes much of Jesus as high priest. It uses this high priestly imagery in a way that no other book in the New Testament does. It's the only place we find Jesus referred to as high priest. Now, as you know, in the Old Testament, the high priest was referred to variously as the priest or the chief priest or the anointed priest. But the high priest had the job of being a mediator between the people and God. He represented the people to God. And he was supposed to be especially holy as he offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. In fact, on the Day of Atonement, the one day a year where a sacrifice was offered to cover all of the sins that had not already been dealt with in that year, the high priest was the only one who could go into the holiest place of the tabernacle and offer that sacrifice. It was the only day of the year that someone went right into the presence of God in order to meet with God and offer sacrifice for the people. So Jesus is our great high priest who has gone into not an earthly tabernacles, holy of holies, but the heavenly tabernacle. He's gone right into the presence of God in the heavens, the author says in our passage. We have a unique high priest. He is one we find in chapter 1, verse 3, who has identified so closely with the Father as the Son. In fact, he is the radiance of God's glory. When you think about that Shekinah glory, the Jews would come to call it later, the glory that came down in the wilderness and settled on the tabernacle, showing the presence of God. The author of Hebrews says, when you see Jesus, you are seeing the radiance of the presence of God. He is the exact representation of the Father's character. You see the image of the Father stamped on the face of the Son, in a sense. And He is the one who has passed through the heavens. When Jesus ascended and went back to the heavenly realm, He sat down on the throne of the universe as He was exalted to the right hand of God. But something that might help us get our heads around how great Jesus really was is the idea that he was the creator of everything that is. Jesus spoke into existence all the beauty and the majesty that we see around us with the mountains right here near downtown Vancouver. In thinking about the vastness of that universe and what it would mean that Jesus was the one to speak it into existence, we might think about an analogy that was drawn by Robert Jastrow, former head of NASA's Gartered Center. He was trying to help people understand how big the universe is. And he said this, an analogy will help to clarify the meaning of these enormous distances that we have in the universe. Let the sun be the size 
of an orange. On that scale of sizes, where this is the sun, the earth is a grain of sand circling about 30 feet away. The giant planet Jupiter is 11 times larger than the earth. It's a cherry pit revolving at a distance of one city block. Saturn is another cherry pit, two blocks from the sun, and Pluto is still another sand grain at a distance of 10 city blocks from the sun. So everybody have the scale, right? This is the sun, the Earth's a, a, a grain of sand 30 feet away. On that same scale, the average distance between stars is 2,000 miles. The sun's nearest neighbor, a star called Alpha Centauri, is 1,300 miles away. In the space between the sun and its neighbors, there is nothing but a thin distribution of hydrogen atoms forming a vacuum far better than any ever achieved on Earth. The galaxy on that scale is a cluster of oranges separated by an average distance of 2,000 miles, the entire cluster being 20 million miles in diameter. And Hebrews tells us that it is Jesus who spoke that into existence. Do you see how great he is? S.M. Lockridge was a great African-American preacher back in the 20th century who I heard preach when I was in university. And he was preaching on Jesus being Lord of creation. And he said he took the hammer of his power and smote the anvil of his omnipotence and the sparks flew out into the heavens and created the stars. He grabbed him a handful of nothing, made something out of nothing, hung it on nothing and told it to stay there and the world was formed. Jesus is Lord of creation. And that great Lord who created all there is humbled himself, condescended to come down and live a life like you and me, to be vulnerable all the way to the point of death because that's what it took for him to be our great high priest. Our faith is grounded. It finds its stability in the one who is great beyond imagining. He is our great high priest who is greater than you and I ever imagined. But secondly, Jesus is more compassionate than you dared hope. So hold on in the struggles that you're experiencing. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Now this word, hold fast, is a Greek term that could be used very literally. You think of someone holding on to a rope if they're about to fall. Uh, I was thinking about a time years ago when my wife and I had moved to a little house, our first house actually, back in 
the countryside of Tennessee near my university where I taught. And we had no money, so I did a lot of work on that little house. I, I did the siding on the outside, I, re, I replaced the roof. And when I was up on the roof, I remember a moment when I was working and suddenly I started sliding a bit. And I just went flat and rigid and was terrified I was about to slide off of the roof. I was holding on for dear life. Well, this word speaks of holding on, not to something physical and literal, but to your commitment to Christ, your confession of Him as your Lord. It could speak, this word could be used to speak of hanging on to a body of teaching. And so what Hebrews does is it encourages these believers on the basis of who Jesus is to hold on to their confession, a public stand with Jesus and his people. Persecuted had elevated at this time, leaving these people feeling like they were slipping. It may be in the, strangest, in the strangeness of this pandemic that we feel at times like we're losing perspective, like we are sliding away from clarity in terms of who we are and what we are about, even in relation to the church, to the people of God and the message of the gospel. And what Hebrews would say to us is, hold on, hold on to your confession, because you have a high priest who can sympathize with your weaknesses we don't have to have it all together, folks. Christ knows what it feels like to be tempted with fear and disillusionment. He knows the powerful pull of temptation even more than we do because he never experienced kind of that sense of release when you finally give in. It was important that a high priest could sympathize with people. In verse 2 of chapter 5, it says that the earthly high priest could deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he also is clothed with weakness. And then in verses 7 through 9, we read kind of a reflection on what Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it uses the language of the Psalms to talk about the agony, the challenge of a person who is a righteous sufferer. It says, During his earthly life he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, after he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. He learned through his suffering to hang in there and persevere in the task that the Father had given him to do. And part of what it means to hold on in the Christian life when we're going through challenging times is to work with what God is teaching us and shaping us into the image of the Son. 
when it says here that Jesus was perfected, it doesn't mean that he was flawed and then became unflawed. The word perfected in Hebrews has to do with staying on the path all the way to the end that the Father has for you so that you can be fully equipped for something. Jesus stayed on that path all the way to the point of death, as Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and following tells us, so that he might be fully equipped to be our high priest. And he is compassionate because of what he has been through. He brings us decisive forgiveness in the new covenant. And it's a beautiful picture of the price having been decisively paid. Do you know that every sin that you've ever committed, every sin that you ever will commit has already been decisively dealt with by Christ if you are a part of the new covenant. So Christ is more compassionate than you ever dared hope. I love the picture of compassion that we see in Les Miserables. You know that story Jean Valjean is a convicted felon. He has stolen bread and been put in years of hard labor. When he is finally released, he makes his way to the home of a priest who gives him warm hospitality, only to have Valjean steal from him, to take silver and run off into the night. But he's caught by constables, and he's brought back expecting to be condemned. And in the musical version, the constables say, tell his reverence your story. Let us see if he's impressed. You were lodging there last night. You were the honest bishop's guest. And then out of Christian goodness, when he learned about your plight, you maintain he made a present of this silver. And the bishop says, that's right. But my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. And the bishop gives Valjean two silver candlesticks at this point. You forgot I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? So, messieurs, you may release him, for this man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty. May God's blessing go with you. And then he turns to Valjean and he says this, But remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. For the witness of the martyrs by the passion of the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. Your soul is bought for God. And what Jesus has done is he has brought you and me decisive forgiveness in this new relationship with the Father. Jesus is more compassionate than you dared hope. And then finally, Jesus brings you farther than you ever dreamed possible. So draw near. In verse 16 we read, Therefore let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help, in time of need. This word approach or draw near 
is a picture related to the tabernacle itself. This is what the priests were supposed to do as they came into the presence of God. They drew near. And the text tells us that we can do this with boldness or confidence. Back at uh, my university in Tennessee, the president's office was kind of big and elaborate. There was a, an outer office and then an inner office, kind of the holy of holies of the university. And I would go into that office at times and I would go to the president's administrative assistant and I would say, could I please have a time with the president? Could we set up a time for us to meet? And she would tell me what was available and we would kind of work it out. I never barged into that outer office and said to the administrative assistant, I'm going in to see David. Never did that. I liked my job. I wanted to keep my job. <laughs> and I, I didn't have the boldness or the confidence because it wouldn't have been appropriate in that context and that situation to just go right into the presence of the president of the university. But do you know that I have more of a basis for going right into the presence of the God of the universe with confidence, with boldness, because of what Jesus has done for me, than I have for barging into the office of the president of a university. We can draw near to God. In fact, this, this word was used of prayer back in the ancient world, of drawing near to our God. And we come to him for timely help, verse 16 tells us. We come to him with our needs to say, Lord, these are the things that I'm struggling with right now. I need help. And I'm sure all of us have a list of things that are challenging us at this moment in life. We come to him to find timely help with the struggles we're facing in life at this point. We need to see Jesus as our great high priest because he is the one who brings us right into the presence of the Father with boldness. And God has the answers we need to face life and the challenges it brings us. Back in World War II, the war was drawing to a close. The German army was sending children to man the lines in a futile effort to stop the Allied invasion into their homeland. It was March 1945. A young man named Karl Schlesier, a German soldier, remembers this time. He writes, I was in a battalion of teenage uh, grenadiers fresh out of training and was sent into the front line east of the Rhine River after American forces had established a foothold on the East Bank. Fresh American units were pushed across and our battalion was ordered to plug a hole in the front line. We dug in three companies abreast on a slight rise in front of the little town of Kirchellen. 
I was with the first company in the center of the position. My company numbered about 80 teenagers. In bitter fighting, American troops pushed through on both sides but got stuck in front of my company. About 17 or 18 of us were left. We huddled in two main foxholes. And on the morning of March 28, amid smoldering tanks and twisted bodies, there suddenly came an eerie silence. And I looked over the hole I shared with a buddy and saw no life but movement in a busted roof of a farmhouse about 200 yards away. Feeling sudden panic, Schlesier writes, he stood up in the foxhole, fired four rapid shots at nothing in particular, and then the eerie silence was broken by a single voice. A lone American soldier had walked calmly toward the entrenched Germans, saying in a calm and low voice, come on out, come on out. It communicated motive and opportunity and assurance and hope. The German soldiers dropped their weapons. They took off their helmets, tossing them back into the foxhole. The soldier was an American Indian. He told them to put their hands over their heads. And then he turned and walked toward the American lines without looking back as the German soldiers followed. Schlesier was overwhelmed. He writes, he must have been the most reasonable man, the most perceptive, the most understanding, and by far the most brave. We had not expected to live, and he must have seen how idiotic this wall was, and he acted on his own to save us, risking his life in the process to bring us the help that we needed. Later in the prisoner of war camp, we talked about him. If he had not come to get us, we would have died in our foxholes. His action was a personal one. He was not ordered to do what he did. I owe him my life. In the incarnation, Christ came to us, was vulnerable. He died to decisively forgive our sins, and to bring us to the presence in a face-to-face -face relationship with God the Father. We need to see Jesus as our great high priest because Jesus is greater than you ever imagined. He is more compassionate than you dared hope. So brothers and sisters, hold on. And Jesus brings you farther than you ever dreamed possible. So draw near through him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much for your mercy to us and how that mercy is embodied in your son, Jesus. Father, we thank you that in the midst of this pandemic, and all of the small struggles and temptations and difficulties that we are facing in life at this point, that we have hope because we can come right to you at the throne of grace and find timely help. 
I pray, oh God, that we would do so today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.